At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series, Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life. You know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart 3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. Here you are, miss. Change from your 220s. Check the other tires for you. They look okay. Anything wrong? No. No, nothing's wrong. I was just looking at that, uh, that hitchhiker. What hitchhiker? He's gone now. I guess he got picked up. Probably. Funny, though, I saw him a little while ago while you were changing the tire. Hey, he probably got a lift right after we passed him. Probably. In the days following December 28th, 1980, Lieutenant Colonel Chuck Halt, the deputy base commander, was asked to write a memo describing the events of the three-night encounter to give to the Royal Air Force representative at RAF Bentwaters. The memo was sent up to the Ministry of Defense, but Halt never heard anything back. I was relieved, to be very honest with you. And that was, I thought, the end of it. Until two or three years later, whenever the memo got released, and then it hit the fan. I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 3, The Lighthouse. It hit the fan on October 2nd, 1983, in the English newspaper called The News of the World, under the headline, UFO lands in Suffolk, and that's official. The article began, A UFO has landed in Britain, and that staggering fact has been officially confirmed. Despite a massive cover-up, News of the World investigators have proof that the mysterious craft came to Earth in a red ball of light at 3 a.m. on December 27, 1980. You might have noticed that they have the date of the first night wrong. The 27th, not the 26th. And we'll get to that later. In addition to the article, 
the paper ran the text of Chuck Halt's memo, the Rendlesham encounter was now publicly known, even if the news of the world's journalistic standards weren't always of the highest quality. The news of the world, the Sunday tabloid, a bit like the National Enquirer, although not quite as bad. I'm Ian Ridpath. I'm an English amateur astronomer, science writer, and UFO skeptic. Ridpath read the article in 1983 and became perhaps the leading investigator into the encounter. Now, as an amateur astronomer, I always like to try and explain things with some celestial event because the investigations show that the great majority of UFO cases are actually caused by natural and man-made objects. And the biggest culprits are usually bright stars and planets, satellites, meteors, sometimes aircraft as well. But I couldn't find anything to explain what this flashing light might be that the airmen had seen among the trees out in Rendlesham Forest. Unable to find an explanation, he decided to go to a local source. The area is a forest, it's a cultivated forest run by the British Forestry Commission. So I rang their office and I spoke to a forester who at that time lived in a cottage not very far away from where the airmen had gone out to investigate. And he said to me, you know, I don't know of anyone around here who thinks anything strange happened back then. And so I said, well, what do you think it was? They must have seen something. And he said to me, I think it was the lighthouse. And I nearly fell off my chair because despite all the talk in the press and everywhere else, no one had ever mentioned a lighthouse. This was the Orfordness Lighthouse on the North Sea coast, about five miles from the base. It was built in 1792, the last of a series of beacons dating back to 1637. It's not there anymore. It was torn down in the summer of 2020. So I thought I have to go out and see this for myself. At the time, Ridpath was doing some work for BBC television. He asked them if he could go investigate. So I went out there with a film crew and we filmed the light flashing between the trees and we interviewed the forester, who's a man called Vince the Kettle. And I came back pretty much convinced that this explained at least part of the sighting, which was the flashing light seen between the trees on both nights of the event. So this was the first indication that maybe there was another explanation for what had happened over those three nights in 1980. But of course, there was more to the encounter than the flashing light. So Ridpath began to look at more of the details of the encounters reported by Jim Penniston and John Burroughs on the first night and Chuck Halt and the others on the third night. He wondered... What could John Burroughs' supervisor, Bud Steffens, have seen on the first night to make him think that something had landed in the forest? John Burroughs, from episode one. We were driving down towards the East Gate when he saw something strange in the sky that he said went into the forest, later was quoted as saying it landed. Now, I contacted a friend of mine in the British Astronomical Association, and he said, oh, yes, at about 3 a.m., On that same morning, 
a bright fireball had been seen over southern England. Now, this was a natural piece of space debris burning up high in the atmosphere. And we know from plenty of past cases that bright fireballs give the impression of something coming to Earth much closer than they really are. The fireball was miles up in the sky, probably out over the North Sea. But to Stephens, it would have looked much closer. And when it disappeared in the sky behind the trees, it probably looked as though it disappeared into the trees. Remember the confusion caused by Stephens' claims that the object had landed in the forest and Penniston's confusion because the forest was too dense for anything to land? This fireball explains that as well. There was no indication of a crash because the fireball was never anywhere near the forest. It was an optical illusion. So they went out looking for something because they thought that something had crashed in the forest. They saw something they didn't recognize. He's talking about the light from Orfordness Lighthouse. It was one of the brightest lighthouses in the country, out on the coast, and from that part of the forest where they saw the flashing light, the light of the lighthouse could be seen, I know, because I went there and I saw it myself. But Burroughs and Penniston saw another light as well, one that could not have been the lighthouse. I'm uh, James McGahey. I am trained as an astronomer, a retired United States Air Force pilot, was also in the Army during Vietnam. I've flown around the world. I have studied UFOs for over 40 years and debunked a number of UFO cases and appeared on television. The one thing that did come up originally when they were out there the first night. At the end of this time period, when they were out there, they saw a white and blue bank of lights through the forest trees. From John Burroughs' written statement following the encounter, read by an actor. We had just passed a creek and were told to come back when we saw a blue light to our left in the trees. It was only there for a minute and just streaked away. At 4.11 in the morning, there was a police car out there. British police cars are not like U.S. police cars. They have a bank of flashing white and blue lights on the top, which were flashing through the forest as they were driving around these forest roads out there when Burroughs and Denison were out there looking around at lights. And then all of a sudden, they see this bank of white and blue lights flashing, which was nothing more than that police car in the forest. So for the first night, by this accounting, you have three different elements. The fireball in the sky, the Orfordness lighthouse, and finally, the police cars. The first night also left physical evidence. Remember, Jim Penniston returned to the scene just hours after the encounter and made plaster casts of imprints in the ground. On the third night, Chuck Halt and his group went to the scene with a radiation detector and picked up some radiation. First, the marks in the ground. Now, my friend, the forester, who I spoke to, Vince Thurkettle, said, well, yeah, he'd seen these marks as well. They looked to him like rabbit diggings. They weren't very deep. They weren't even in an evenly spaced triangle. 
and they were covered with pine needles. So they were clearly quite old. There was nothing new or unusual about it. It's soft, sandy soil. So it's quite easy for rabbits to dig in. So he didn't see anything unusual about that either. At the time, the local police concurred that the markings on the ground had been made by forest animals. But Halt didn't know this on the night of the 28th when he led a party into the forest. Now, Colonel Holt was taken out and shown these marks. He took a Geiger counter and a Geiger counter operator with him. Uh, just turn the meter off. You gotta say that again. About four feet off the ground, about 110 degrees, getting a reading of about four clicks. It's normal background radiation that they were picking up. It's quite clear from Colonel Holt's tape. People would try and tell you that they were elevated readings. They weren't. Nick Pope, among others, disputes that these readings were insignificant. On June 27, 1997, the physicist Frank Close, who is now an emeritus professor of physics at Oxford University, appeared on a show called Strange But True Live, broadcast by the British TV network ITV3. On it, he addressed claims about the radiation levels detected by Halt and Nevels. In this clip, he has a Geiger counter similar to the one used on the third night of the Rendlesham Forest encounter. This is the British equivalent of the standard US Air Force issue, which is used usually for measuring huge amounts of radiation like in nuclear blasts and so forth. All you need to notice is there's a dial on the front here, and it looks very much like the speedo in your car. Now, the speed in your car is great for measuring whether you're exceeding the speed limit or not, but you know what it's like. You're stuck in the traffic jam doing nothing, but it's still flickering at the bottom. We know from the report that Colonel Holt made at the time that the amount of radiation they thought they were detecting on the machine was very, very small, 0.1. And we've checked with the makers of the US equivalent, and they said, their quote is, that this measurement was the bottom reading of the machine and was of little or no significance at all. So it was not possible with the device to measure that small amount. So the radiation readings are explainable. Halt also brought the Starscope, which was essentially a set of night vision goggles. He clearly didn't understand the equipment. He didn't understand what it did. He was pointing an image intensifier at a tree and said the tree was glowing when he had a flashlight on it. An image intensifier just intensifies the light, doesn't measure anything. It's quite clear that he pointed the image intensifier at the lighthouse. Yeah, like a pupil of an eye looking at you and winking. And the flash is so bright to the starscope that uh, it almost burns your eye. And of course, image intensifiers amplify the light 20, 30, 40,000 times, and a beam every five seconds coming through the image intensifier would effectively burn the image out totally. It had been so bright. Halt looked through the starscope at a light source. But what evidence is there that it was, in fact, coming from the lighthouse? Well, Orfordness Lighthouse had a rotating light that did a full rotation every five seconds. Now, the men then drew Colonel Holt's attention to the flashing light. Same thing that had been seen on the first night. And you can hear the men say, look, there it is, straight ahead, off my flashlight. There it is again. 
and there is a five second gap between the there it is and there it is again. So we know that the light was flashing at five second intervals. On an episode of his Skeptoid podcast on the Rendlesham encounter, Brian Dunning synced a portion of the halt tape with a five second tone to show how the appearance of the light coincided with the lighthouse's rotation interval. We are using this tape with his permission. In this case, the flashing lights, well, they never got much closer to it. Colonel Holt said, well, it looks like it's clear off to the coast. So <laughs> we have a flashing light, which is in the direction of the Orford Ness Lighthouse, because we know from where he was standing, the direction he was looking. So although he didn't realize what it was at the time, from Colonel Holt's own words, it seems very clear that he was looking at Orford Ness Lighthouse, as were the airmen on the first night. But this was not the only strange light that Halt and his group saw on the third night. They also saw colored lights down near the horizon. This is from the Halt tape. 305 at about uh, 10 degrees horizon uh, directly north. We've got two strange objects, uh, half moon shaped, dancing about with colored lights on them. But uh, gets to be about 5 to 10 miles out, maybe less. The half moons have now turned into full circles. As though there was an eclipse or something there for a minute or two. Now, what's bright, star-like, and flashes colors in the sky? Well, stars. Colonel Holt was out there until it started getting bright. In the morning, the dawn started coming up. And they were still there. He said, actually, one of them appeared to be low over the Woodbridge base, which was towards the southwest of him, which was exactly where Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, is to be found, or was to be found at that time. And when a star like Sirius is low down, the air currents in the atmosphere make it twinkle. So yes, you will see Sirius flashing red, you will see it flashing green, you will see it flashing white, simply because its light is being broken up by convection currents in the atmosphere. So just like the first night, the encounter on the third night in this explanation comprises three elements. The lighthouse, not understanding how the specialized equipment they were using worked, and then the misidentification of the stars. The only thing that's unusual, well, you don't often get lighthouses involved in, uh, in UFO cases, the first one I've ever come across. And as they moved between the trees, it looked as though the bright light was moving away zigzagging between the trees in front of them. And it's exactly the same kind of effect you get when it seems as though you're being chased by the moon when you're driving in, in your car. So it wasn't really the light that was moving. It was them that were moving, which gave the impression of the light receding and zigzagging between the trees. This, then, is the skeptical explanation for what happened in Rendlesham Forest. It seems to offer an explanation for all of the elements over the course of those nights. But it's not actually proof of anything. It's an alternative explanation that doesn't rely on the paranormal. Of course, not everyone accepts the skeptical explanation that we've just heard. 
I've heard every explanation for the Rendlesham incident, and um, look, I'm not here to prove to anyone that aliens landed in the forest in Rendlesham. Host of the Somewhere in the Skies podcast, Ryan Sprague. I'm here to try to find the truth. And I'm open to any possibility of what Rendlesham was. What I'm not willing to accept is that it was a lighthouse. Was there another way to possibly verify what had happened one way or the other? Well, this incident involved the military. And where the military is involved, there's paperwork. After the break. Strange Arrivals will return in a moment. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the land of saints and sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. Watch it now on digital. Rated R. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge Base Complex housed nuclear weapons in 1980. In a case where an unknown craft or crafts encroached on that complex, you would expect to find a mountain of paperwork. Maybe that paperwork was classified or remains classified, but you would expect that it would exist. The written statements by Penniston, Burroughs, and others were not, in fact, official documents. They did not find their way into the Air Force official accounting of this event. The only official document that was produced from this encounter was Chuck Halt's memo, and that wasn't for the U.S. Air Force. It was written for the British Ministry of Defense. In 2000, Prime Minister Tony Blair signed the Freedom of Information Act, which provided a means for journalists and the public to request official government information. Sheffield Hallam University Associate Professor David Clark. At the time, I was working as a news reporter for one of the big regional newspapers in the UK, and freedom of information was coming in, and my editor was saying, everyone, all you journalists, you need to sort of use this. It's where it's going to be in the future. It's a great tool for journalists, forcing the government to, to release stuff they've not released before. 
Clark realized that he needed to find his own niche, a subject that he could focus his attention on now that this new information had been made available. So I just thought, well, what about UFOs? You know, I know that there's this unit at the Ministry of Defense that's existed since the 1950s. I know they've got lots of files on this thing. In the past, they've always stonewalled. So I just thought, well, I'm going to use this legislation. And the very first thing I went for was the file on the Rendlesham Forest incident, because up until that point, they just said the only thing that they got on file was Colonel Holt's memo, one page of A4. And I just thought that cannot be true. Clark put in his request soon after this new policy was implemented. And I really didn't think it would get anywhere. Lo and behold, within a few months, they said, oh, yes, we've located a 155-page file, and we've also gone back and searched through all the other files covering the period of the sighting, and we've found a whole bunch of other documents as well, so we've copied those for you. We've added those to the file. Here it is, big, thick brown envelope just dropped through my letterbox one morning. And I just thought, well, I've hit jackpot here. But despite the size of the file, the contents were disappointing. The file itself was something that was assembled later when the story got into the news of the world. And it it largely consists of Holt's memo, a few other bits and pieces, and then the rest of it is just letters from ufologists and members of the public who've seen the story in the newspapers and who were writing in to the Ministry of Defence saying, what do you know about this? Did the aliens really land? And their response every time is just the standard, well, all we've got is Colonel Holt's story. We looked into it at the time. Um, Our air defence experts decided that uh, there was nothing to be worried about because they didn't see anything on radar. So that's the end of it, as far as we're concerned. So the, the entire file is just a repetition of that statement whenever they received a letter or an inquiry from the media. In other words, there was nothing. Later, though, Clark became the official spokesman for the government effort to organize and release the UFO files that it had. In this capacity, he was able to access all of the surviving files. This let him take another approach to Rendlesham documentation. He asked to see the general file of UFO reports for the whole year of 1980. Clark says it was a huge file, about a foot thick. And the interesting thing from my point of view as an archivist, historian, journalist is, the report from Colonel Holt was just filed with all the rest of the lights in the sky in that file. So his original memo is in the general UFO file for 1980, alongside all the other Mr. So-and-so coming out of a public house in London saw a light in the sky. The next story is Colonel Hall, then another story. And the guy who was the UFO desk officer at the time, Simon Whedon, I spoke to him about this and he remembered it clearly and he just said, well, it was just another story. We didn't take it seriously. And this is a critical point when looking at the Rendlesham encounter. As we've mentioned before, if a craft, any craft, had appeared around RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge, bases with nuclear weapons during the Cold War, it should have caused great concern and an intense official reaction. But it didn't. Chuck Halt talks about how he never heard back from the U.S. Air Force or the English Ministry of Defense about his encounter. Why? Why didn't the Ministry of Defense take this seriously? And there is a a two-page briefing in the files about this. And basically, what they said was, 
We didn't take it seriously because Colonel Holt didn't take it seriously. We looked at his memo. Why did he wait two weeks to report it to us in the first place? And why did he get all the dates wrong? If he thought when this was happening that the base, a nuclear armed base, was under attack, you wouldn't wait until the British base commander came back from his Christmas holidays two weeks later. I mean, none of what I've said here says that something didn't happen. Clearly something did happen. But the time to actually do a thorough investigation of it has passed. You can't investigate something that happened 40 years ago when all the records have been destroyed and when such elementary mistakes were made at the time. He's talking about radar records that were destroyed, leaving that question forever unresolved. We've heard the accounts of the encounters at Rendlesham Forest, and in the next episode, we'll hear more from the witnesses. We've also heard the skeptical explanation for what happened. It's safe to say that neither the original nor the skeptical account have become universally accepted. The public understanding of what happened is still up for grabs. So you've got this inconclusive situation where people come in with other types of explanations when something seems just completely incomprehensible. And so I think that when you don't have a cultural narrative to explain what happens, then you will often have different types of explanations coming forward. My name is Deborah Latanzi Shudiga. I am a folklorist and professor at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. I have been teaching folklore for over 20 years, and my area of specialty is narrative analysis. Those types of stories are obviously of really great interest to folklorists because it tells us basically how a community or a person is thinking about a set of circumstances. So this is an important point for the rest of the season. In a situation such as Rendlesham, where there are two or more narratives about what happened, why does one narrative eventually become accepted? And what does that tell you about the culture at the time? These are the kinds of questions that folklorists are interested in. Whether the story is literally true or not is beside the point. Again, David Clark. When it comes to people's stories, I, I just prefer to just treat those stories as stories and respect them as stories. And to me, it doesn't particularly matter whether they are made up or genuinely believed or a real experience. They're, they are all expressions. I mean, the case is almost like re-enchantment of the world in that, yeah, you can explain it all, as Ian tries to do in down-to-earth terms. He's talking about Ian Ridpath. Yeah, that might be the case. I can accept that, but it doesn't explain the psychology of it. It doesn't explain why people were thinking about UFOs. I mean, it's more like a folk story. And the fact it took place in a forest as well. Forests are enchanted places in folklore. You know, there's loads and loads of stories in British folklore about people going into forests, getting lost, being led astray by will-o'-the-wisps, you know, lights that are moving in the distance that people go towards and the light moves further away and then they end up falling into a bog. That kind of thing. Those forests in Suffolk are just redolent with stories like that. Folklorists divide stories into categories, such as fairy tales, folk tales, and narratives of personal experience. The Rundlesham Forest encounter 
is what folklorists would classify as a legend. Basically, what folklore is, it's a body of shared cultural experience that one learns from their parents, their friends, their community, informally. So folklore is the things that we learn about life that are not often taught in schools. Among that, probably the most popular is the legend. And a legend is a story that generally people tell to one another as if it were true, although the narrative itself calls into question the veracity of what's being told. It's not uncommon for someone to hear a legend and then go, did that really happen? So the idea here is that legends are told or shared to share different types of experiential or belief knowledge that calls into question the very nature of that knowledge. Think about ghost stories. Some ghost stories you hear are very individualized. I have friends, for instance, who have a neighbor who has stories of lights being turned on at different times of the night. This story will most likely never travel beyond a small circle of friends and friends of friends. But then there are also stories that come across that are very traditional folk legends. Probably one of my favorite is The Vanishing Hitchhiker, where a person sees a person hitchhiking, they stop because for some reason they feel compelled to pick up the person. There's very little interaction between the driver and the hitchhiker. And when they get to the destination that the hitchhiker is asked to be dropped off at, usually the hitchhiker disappears. Wherever I go, there he is. Wherever I stop, I see him. No matter how far I travel or how fast I go, he's ahead of me. At the beginning of this episode, we heard a clip from a Twilight Zone episode that is a version of this tale. I believe you're going my way. In the standard Vanishing Hitchhiker story, the driver finds out that the person they picked up actually died some time ago, often around the spot where they hitched the ride. It's a creepy story and one that, when you hear it, begs the question, do you believe in ghosts or the supernatural? One of the things that folk culture often does, especially in the genre of legend and belief, is that there is a developing performance of rationality. People know that being seen as a believer can automatically cast doubt on people's stories. I'm Lynn McNeil. I am a folklorist at Utah State University. I run the folklore program there. I teach folklore there. I work in the folklore archives that we have there. When someone asks you if you believe in the supernatural or the paranormal, you probably think of this as a yes or no question. Either you believe or you don't. And you also understand that how you answer will affect the way the person asking will think about you. You know that the quote-unquote correct answer is to say no, because that means you are a rational person, that your thinking is based in science. For most people, though, the real answer isn't necessarily yes. The real answer is something along the lines of a story. The real answer to do you believe in ghosts is, well, no, of course not. I mean, who would? But after my grandpa died, there was like this one Christmas light and it was totally the one that he was always into. And it just started blinking like the day after he died and it never stopped blinking. And we all just sort of knew like that was grandpa. 
you know, letting us know that he was still there with us for the holidays. So no, I don't believe in ghosts, but I mean, my grandpa's in that Christmas light. Like that very paradoxical, very contradictory answer. And that's never on the survey. But when people are surveyed to find out their beliefs about the supernatural or paranormal, the questions aren't looking for that kind of complicated answer. They're looking for the person to answer, yes, I believe, or no, I don't believe. When that's the choice, people check the no box. This understanding of what people will think of you if you express a belief in these things carries over to how stories involving the supernatural or paranormal are presented. When someone wants to speak about a supernatural experience they've had, they grow, I like the word armor, over their story in anticipation of people who are going to say, okay, weirdo, you clearly are an irrational thinker. So we see this performance of rationality, this intentional reality testing that takes place that becomes a part of the story to say, now I thought it could be this, but then I realized it couldn't because of this. And I also thought that maybe it could be this, but that doesn't make any sense because of X, Y, and Z. Think about Chuck Halt and how he characterizes his intentions as he sets out to investigate the return of the lights at Rendlesham Forest. He says, Have him meet me at the disaster preparedness office in about 30 minutes. And we'll go out and take see what this is all about. And I wanted to document there was nothing there. Whether you believe that Chuck Halt saw unidentified craft in the sky, or whether you believe that he saw the Orphanist lighthouse and stars, doesn't change the basics of his experience. He went into Rendlesham Forest and saw lights. He tried to make sense of what he was seeing and arrived at the conclusion that they were UFOs they end up at this supernatural or or paranormal conclusion that for all that it might not be scientifically testable the way that we think of the scientific process, it's a rational thought process that they've gone through. And this is something that any folklorist who's done ethnographic work with people on the subjects of belief in the supernatural sees right away is oftentimes these are incredibly thoughtful, observant people who themselves don't want to have to have drawn that conclusion, and yet there's no other conclusion for them to draw sometimes. The other thing about legends is, in order for a legend to survive and be successful, there's got to be a debate about its plausibility, about whether it really happened or not. And that's where the clashes between the different factions who who are representing the different characters in this play, which is how I see it, and the clash between what they're trying to establish and the skeptics who are saying it's all nonsense, it was a lighthouse and a meteor and all the rest of it. It's that debate, that ongoing debate that keeps it alive. Because once everyone accepts, oh yeah, it was a lighthouse and we can all go home now and, and be happy, no, it's no longer a legend. It's something that's been explained and that we can put to one side and move on to the next thing. And it's not just a dispute between people who do and don't believe that Rendlesham Forest was visited by unidentified crafts in 1980. As we will see next episode, disagreement among the witnesses over what they saw has grown over the years as new explanations for what happened are put forward. So the reason it's living on and it's mutating is because you've got this constant sort of clash going on between the believers and the skeptics. And even in the believer camp, you've got all these different sort of 
groups of believers are all trying to assert their version of it, and that's why it's so latent. It's one of the most successful UFO legends. In fact, I think it's almost going to supersede Roswell, because the difference with Rendlesham is that all the key participants are still alive. You can actually talk to them, whereas no one from Roswell. I mean, I know there are sons and daughters of people who, who were there, but really, what more can you say about Roswell that hasn't been said? There's an awful lot you can say about Rendlesham that hasn't been said. Halt, Penniston, and Burroughs all have more to say. Things that cast a new, strange light on those three nights in Rendlesham Forest. Next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart3D Audio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey, with voice acting by Jeff Williams, and special thanks to Wendy Connors, creator of the Faded Discs archive of UFO-related audio on archive.org. Learn more about Strange Rivals over at GrimAndMild.com and find more podcasts from iHeartRadio by visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Awards Watch says Liam Neeson is at his best. Don't miss In the Land of Saints and Sinners. Having left his dark past behind, retired hitman Finbar Murphy, played by Neeson, leads a quiet life in a remote coastal Irish town. But when a menacing crew of terrorists arrive, Finbar is drawn into a vicious game of cat and mouse, forcing him to choose between exposing his secret identity or defending his friends and neighbors. In the Land of Saints and Sinners, from Samuel Goldwyn Films and Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. Watch it now on digital. Rated R.